because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Today, I'm going to be discussing threats to energy freedom. We've had an election recently. Uh, whatever else you think of Joe Biden, I don't think there's a case that can be made that he's going to be good for energy freedom in this country. And therefore, I think it's more crucial than ever to think about how to fight for energy freedom as well as possible. And to join me and to talk about this, I have a guest. I've, I've known him probably for four or five years now. He's a former congressman, Keith Rothfuss. And he, to my knowledge, is the first person who's ever publicly made the moral case for fossil fuels, the first congressman, at least. He presented some data from my book. So we, we uh, got in touch several years ago, and he's always been an insightful guy on political matters, energy freedom matters. So I thought I would bring him on and we could, he could help enlighten me and enlighten all of us. So Congressman Rothfuss, welcome to Power Hour. Alex, good to be with you today. Thanks for having me on. Oh yeah, my pleasure. Snowy Western Pennsylvania today. Yeah, it's amazing how technology can unite our disparate climates. All right, so I wanted to start off a little bit with your backstory. Uh, what prompted you to run for Congress in the first place? And when did you run for Congress, I should also add? Yeah, you know, I, I got going uh, around 2009. Um, I'm raising my six kids here with my wife in Western Pennsylvania. Yeah, <laughs> it's six kids. Uh, gosh, oh, we're doing our best to save Social Security here, getting more taxpayers out there. Um, it's good that you believe in my philosophy. Otherwise, uh, you'd be really evil. We'll talk about that later in the hour because you have, again, in this context of climate, you have a lot of people saying they don't want to have kids because they're afraid. And it, it's really too bad. But in any, in any event, I was raising my family back here. Uh, the Obama administration came in in 2008. Um, you know, I lived through the Clinton, Clinton years. I, I uh, uh, um, wasn't too concerned that Obama had gotten elected. It was a big landmark, uh, first African-American president. Um, there was a sense of optimism at the time with him. I did not vote for him uh, to set the record straight there. Um, I supported uh, McCain in that election. Uh, um, but I thought that the Republicans, frankly, had done such a poor job in the 2000s with managing the debt uh, that there wasn't much that Obama was going to be able to do. He was coming with these big plans. But the first thing he did in February or January, February of 2009 was this $800 billion stimulus, which was all going to be borrowed money on top of the $700 billion TARP bailout, on top of, of the, the hundreds of billions of dollars of deficits that the Republicans had run up uh, during the 2000s. Um, and I became very alarmed immediately that he didn't care about the debt, notwithstanding what he said during the campaign about being concerned about the debt. And I'm looking at my six kids and the national debt stood at about $10 trillion uh, back in those days. And it turns out those might've been the halcyon days when you look at what's happened to the debt since then. Um, in any event, that that was a concern then. It remains a concern now. It guided some of my votes in Congress, particularly on the spending side. Uh, but I, I ran in 2000, or got my uh, uh, up, I guess, as, as it were, in 2009, and started to put a campaign together in the fall of 2009, sensing that the Republicans were going to do very well in the 2010 midterms. So I, I, I threw everything I had at it. Uh, I ran against one of these blue dog Democrats, uh, came up about 1% short in that election in 2010, uh, kept my powder dry and came back in 2012 and was able to get elected in 2012. Uh, basically, it was a, a concern about the debt, concern about freedom. Uh, we're going to talk about energy freedom in this hour, but there, there's, there's healthcare freedom that was at stake then. It remains at stake now. There's education freedom. Uh, so many freedoms that we have taken for granted over the decades in our country, really since, since our founding. You know, these, these have been just a part of the fabric of American life, this, this notion of freedom, freedom and being able to, to, to make something of yourself without having these prescriptions coming down from Washington, D.C., micromanaging every aspect of your life. Uh, uh, so, so, yeah, the debt, freedom, opportunity, uh, restoring our fundamental values that we, we, this country was founded on, the right to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. You go right to our founding document, the Declaration of Independence, and those all animated my run for Congress back in 2010. Yeah, un unfortunately, some of those are temporarily out of fashion among many Republicans. I mean, you mentioned the debt, but another thing I've noticed is just the term freedom is not used 
all that frequently uh, anymore as a, as a value. And, and I think part of, uh, I mean, the, there's all questions about, I mean, discussions of Donald Trump just become so polarized and people just being like, oh, it's an angel, oh, it's the devil, and that kind of thing. But I, mean, I think the one attribute of him that Republicans should think about is just that, I mean, I think he very much had the view that kind of I'm an, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur, I make good deals, I'm a smart guy, and like I'm going to kind of manage the economy as an, like sort of an entrepreneur. But there's a, a view of like, well, it's it's kind of okay if I tell this industry to do this and this industry to do that versus the view that, no, that my core job is to liberate everything, to have really cl uh, clear rules and then to stay out. And I, so I'm, I'm glad to hear you talk about those values because I agree. For me, energy freedom is the freedom that I focus on, but as a citizen, professionally, but as a citizen, all of those freedoms uh, are, are valuable. But since we are talking about energy freedom, when, when, when you were in Congress, what did you do in relation to energy freedom? Because again, I, I came across you, I think you probably messaged me and, and you showed me that you had, there was this video of you having a chart from the moral case for fossil fuels. Yeah. And to me, that came from nowhere. But tell me about your, how you approached energy freedom. Uh, again, you, look, you have that, the backdrop of you have certain folks in this country, and it's not a few, it's, it's quite a few. Uh, a lot of them populated around Washington, D.C., actually, and at, at the academic institutions across this country, that they think if we just get the policy right, we're going to have utopia. I think one of the fundamental differences between the progressive worldview and the conservative worldview is, look, conservatives understand that it's an imperfect world. You know, we will take measures to mitigate against the harmful effects that are out there. We're never going to get to perfect, but there are bureaucrats and people at places, uh, maybe they breed them at the Kennedy School of Government, where they think if we just get the policy right, everything's going to be perfect. So we'll come up with a perfect health care plan that's going to lower your your, your, your cost by $2,500. I mean, if you like your plan now, you can keep it. If you like your doctor, you can keep it. Um, it look, look, we know what the perfect tax rate is gonna, rate's gonna be, so we're gonna put that tax rate out there. And we know what the right mix of regulatory, uh, uh, um, the right regulatory framework for financial services are, so we're gonna impose all of these new regulations on the financial sector. Oh, and then we lose sight that a lot of people aren't going to have access to financial services anymore, or we're going to lose sight that people's health care is going to go through the roof and they're actually going to lose their plans. And in the context of energy, uh, look, it's always those at the margins who are going to be impacted more the more regulations you put out there. I remember when Barack Obama in 2008 was running for president, he said electricity rates will necessarily skyrocket under his plan. That is a direct quote. Uh, well, that's going to impact those on the margins the most, people living on fixed incomes, people who have low incomes, you know, to expect them to pay an extra five, 10, 20 bucks a month because you're going to get energy now from a, a windmill as opposed to a, a power plant that's using fossil fuels or nuclear energy. Um, look, it, it, you make the point so brilliantly in your book. Uh, it's not a zero-sum game. You know, we have had tremendous uh, wealth creation, tremendous health improvements, tremendous standard of living improvements because of what energy has been able to do for us. And here I live in Western Pennsylvania, which is at the crossroads of so many aspects of energy. We have the, the nuclear industry, Westinghouse Electric, really uh, um, all the scientists, the engineers here, uh, are pioneering here decades ago, uh, coal going back, uh, a legacy fuel. Uh, that, that really built this country in the 19th and first half of the 20th centuries. Now we have natural gas, Marcellus coming online 20 years ago and, and multiple layers of, of shale underneath us where we have really a, a supply that will go on for, for centuries. Uh, they used to talk about um, peak oil or peak gas or peak coal. Look, we have tremendous resources in our, in our country. We should be using them. We should be using them responsibly, prudently. Uh, but to say this entire class of fuels is going to be taken offline is really going to hurt uh, uh, this economy, and that's going to hurt the poor the most. So that makes sense in terms of, of your views. What, when you were in Congress, what were you doing to uh, advocate for these views? Because, again, I saw you yeah. pretty prominently advocating for these views. Yeah, we, we, uh, obviously we were going to be working, uh, trying to influence members at the Environmental Protection Agency. We have a subset of power plants here in western Pennsylvania. I was... Uh, advocating on behalf of, uh, it's a really untold success story uh, of what industry can do to help clean up the environment. All over Pennsylvania, we have piles of what's known as waste coal. This was coal that was mined for the steel industry decades ago, but it wasn't 
uh, of sufficient quality. So what happened? It just got dumped. It, it was left on hillsides, they, they, they huge piles. It would leach into streams, uh, polluting the streams, killing the streams. Uh, they'd spontaneously combust. They'd start to emit fumes and, and noxious gases without any controls whatsoever. Well, along came some technology in the 1970s uh, using a special type of power plant that could actually take this, take this low-grade, low-quality coal and, and burn it, uh, turn it into power, and then dispose of it, dispose of it in an environmentally sound way. Uh, at the same time, they're cleaning up these piles that would be spontaneously combusting or leaching into streams. And you should see the transformation of these landscapes out there, where you now have beautiful fields with deer grazing that were once moonscapes and rivers and streams that have come back to life and that have fish. Well, with the EPA coming along with its one size fits all rules and blanketing uh, every single power plant, it was going to have the effect of shutting down this small number of power plants. So I sought to customize the emission standards for these particular plants because of the benefit that they were bringing to the environment. Um, I passed something called the Sense Act, the Satisfying Energy Needs While Saving the Environment, three, three consecutive Congresses in the House of Representatives. Unfortunately, the Senate never took it up. But the good news is that the EPA looked at that work and they were able to adopt that legislation through a regulation. Uh, um, and so now those power plants are going to continue to to provide energy, continue to clean up the environment, and continue to uh, provide hundreds uh, of, of good-paying middle-class jobs. And I do get concerned when I see a change of administrations uh, that could potentially happen. The Electoral College has not met yet, so we, we, we don't have... Uh, uh, the, the official action being done uh, uh, where Biden would be coming in. Uh, but if a Biden administration comes in with the same mindset that the Obama administration comes in, I, I, I have a lot of concern uh, about one size fits all solutions coming from the crowd. Because again, this is uh, uh, many individuals who have lived their lives in government, lived their lives in academia. Uh, they think they can create this utopia if we just get the right mix and then everything seems to fall apart and you go back to negative growth or slow growth. I want to talk about the upcoming administration in a minute, but I just have personal curiosity. So what, what was the context in which you presented that data from the moral case for fossil fuels? Uh, that was, uh, you, know, you mentioned that to me uh, uh, as we were getting ready for this call. And I did not know that I, I would have been the first person to cite your work uh, in the House. But we had these things called uh, special order hours that happen at the end of the day where members can pretty much get up and, and talk about uh, uh, events of the day, uh, issues of concern to them. Uh, you'll see it very often on C-SPAN in the evening, one or two or half a dozen members get up and talk about a particular issue. And this was at about the time uh, when the Obama administration was in Paris negotiating the Paris Climate Accord. And, and my concern was that the, the positive side of what cheap, abundant energy has done for humanity was not getting out there. Uh, and that it was, again, this, uh, this crusade to, to shut down the American energy, energy industry. And what came out of Paris really was a travesty. When you let China continue to pollute to 2030 and to continue to increase its emissions while, while you know, tying down the United States economy. If that's not a fast track, job, uh, fast track path for jobs to go to China, I don't know what is. Here's another one, um, raising taxes on American businesses, which is what Biden has promised to do. You know, we passed our Tax Cuts and Jobs Act a couple of years ago, and what we did was we lowered tax rates for American businesses so that they're competitive in the global marketplace. But if Biden wants to come in and raise taxes on American businesses, and he's proposing rates that will put American businesses at higher tax rates than businesses in China, communist China, he wants to tax businesses in America higher than the communists in China tax their businesses, higher than taxes on Mexican companies. These are our global competitors. And we want to make sure that we have the, 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 the mix of, of competitive policies that are going to allow our companies to succeed. One of the, one of the uh, pieces of legislation I championed, it's, again, it was not one that did not get through, was called the Fair Burdens Act, uh, which was a piece of legislation that said, before you hobble the American economy with all these new regulations, you know, make sure that the same regulations are being applied to companies in China, being applied to companies in India. Uh, China now has the, the second biggest economy in the world. They are a threat. You know, this new term of art they use out there, the great power competition, you know, it's, it sounds somewhat benign. 
you know, there's nothing benign about the Chinese government. You know, they're out to win. They want to establish themselves as the global hegemon. Uh, they are taking every step they can to get there. They cheat on trade deals. They steal our intellectual property. Uh, they, they, they build up a, a, an industry and then they're mercantilist about it. Uh, uh, and they've created vast sums of wealth in that country to our detriment. Uh, so again, I'm concerned with a change in administrations uh, that Biden would usher in a more accommodationist approach towards China and let China ha have uh, uh, really un unlimited emissions through 2030. Uh, he, he, Biden talks about he's going to hold China, you know, to the Paris Climate Accord. You know, ha has Biden read the Paris Climate Accord? Does he understand that China gets this free pass until 2030? Uh, again, that's very detrimental to, to uh, the American worker, the American economy. Yeah, I mean, I would just say my, I mean, my own view is, uh, I think China was smart. I mean, I think the Paris Climate Accord has gave people basically unlimited discretion to commit to nothing. And so I admire the countries who committed to nothing in terms yeah. of CO2 emissions. I don't think, I mean, you look at just the average person in China, they're still not very well off compared to the average person in much of the rest of the world. So now part of that is their government and they have a lot of horrific things in their government and that should be the main reform. But yeah, I mean, and it's even after 2030, they're committing to diminishing their emissions intensity, which you can just make up. So they're, yeah. they're giving themselves an, basically an unlimited license to increase emissions and they're building you know 100 plus coal plants right now and, and I think they should, I, but I think it's, it's like for us, to, if you're thinking, if people are concerned about a global phenomenon like CO2 emissions and CO2 levels, you cannot just sacrifice, I mean, it's particularly perverse to sacrifice American well-being when you're just transferring the emissions to China and then we're, we're paying them to use fossil fuels to produce things and then use fossil fuels to ship them to us. So I, I don't think Biden has a clue about a lot of this stuff. Unfortunately, let's talk for a minute about pre-Biden though. So we had the Obama administration, I think was overwhelmingly anti-energy. President Obama ran on a platform, not only of under my cap and trade system, uh, electricity rates will necessarily skyrocket. He also ran on, I'm gonna end the tyranny of oil. Now, in fact, what happened was he wasn't aware of, this is my narrative, at least he wasn't aware of fracking and therefore his administration wasn't savvy enough to ban it and to stop it, which I think there's a good chance they would have tried to do had they been uh, aware of it. And so basically we had this amazing revolution in this country, which Obama then later took credit for. He said, I have the quotes on energytalkingpoints.com, I think in the fracking entry, but it's something like, you know, this revolution, this America being Ameri America being the world's energy, oil producer, that was me, folks. I think that's what, yeah. that's what he said. But the, the thing I want to stress is there was an anti-energy philosophy, but it wasn't as big a cultural issue. And I think there wasn't as much thought about concre concretely how to oppose energy. And so then I think there was under Hillary Clinton, there was the potential to do a lot worse. Uh, but now what we, what we had then is we had Donald Trump, who was much more, in my view, pro-energy, pro-fossil fuel. So just talk a little bit about some of the changes that he made, because that's going to have a lot of bearing on what Biden is going to try to change back and even change further in the opposite direction. Again, you look at things like withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accord. Uh, you look at things like drilling up in Anwar, up in Alaska. Uh, which we had been trying to do for 40 years, trying to get a policy change out of Washington, D.C. We actually achieved that in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Uh, the idea that America would, would be producing more energy than it consumes and being a net exporter of energy. Uh, these are all good things. Being able to take our natural gas and, and liquefy it and, and get it to Eastern Europe so that they don't have to depend, or even Western Europe, so that they don't have to depend on Russia. You know, the, all the charges about Russia, 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 uh, it, it was President Trump who was building up the American energy industry that, to the detriment of the Russian energy industry and to find markets for American energy so that we could support our allies, particularly you know, Poland, uh, uh, the places in country, countries in, in formerly behind the Iron Curtain, and to continue to support them. Uh, so so it, it, taking a look at the costs of regulation, understanding that if you put on a regulation, it's again, it's not a zero sum game. There's, there's a cost in jobs to that. And I think the uh, Trump administration was much more sensitive. Uh, uh, look, everybody wants to have clean air, clean water, good environment. 
uh, um, we've made tremendous progress over the decades. Uh, I think we're even ahead of the metrics under the Paris Climate Accord, largely because of the natural gas revolution. Uh, but all that would stop uh, under a Biden administration. So I, I think it, I, I think Trump had a more realistic view of of how American markets work. Uh, he understood that you want. Uh, uh, choices in energy out there in, in the country. Uh, um, let the market address some of these issues. At the same time, we're gonna continue uh, to enforce uh, policies that give us clean air, clean water. So then let's jump right into to Biden. So if we look at, I mean, obviously things like Paris Climate Accords, but what do you expect to be, if we look at the first 100, 200, 300 days, what do you expect not just Biden, but allied Democrats in Congress to be doing to attack energy freedom from the get-go? Well, you know, one thing I noticed today, the uh, majority leader uh, put out his calendar for, for next year. There's, I, I, and I did the math, there's 252 work days, Monday through Friday in 2021. Well, guess how many of those 252 days Congress is actually gonna be scheduled to do votes? How many? 100, 101. <laughs> so, well, that's good. Uh, uh, while your local grocery clerk is there, and you, well, you hope. But unfortunately, what that means is it empowers the leadership. It empowers the leadership to put together these gigantic bills that end mm -hmm. up becoming uh, uh, messaging bills. They end up becoming party line votes. There's rarely an opportunity to offer any kind of substantive amendment to these things. It's, it's a symptom of how fundamentally broken the legislative process is. Uh, the legislature continuing to, 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 to defer to the executive branch and the executive branch agencies. Um, so I, I, I suspect very little to be done, uh, uh, particularly should the, the, the Senate remain in Republican hands. Uh, I think you're just going to have more of the same of what we had the last couple of, of years. And you're going to see these big bills come out. There'll be some, something akin to the Green New Deal. Uh, that the progressives in the House will put together. They'll pass some very aggressive, very expensive bill out of the House of Representatives that frankly, if it wasn't acted, would do nothing except slow down the economy. Uh, you take a look at, go back to Obama's clean power plan that would have lowered global temperatures by two one hundredths of a degree at a tremendous cost. Uh, um, rather than focusing on adaptability, on mitigation, uh, ways to live with a, a, a changing environment, uh, which is what really we should be doing. So really all the, all the focus, I think, over the next couple of years is gonna be on, uh, on, on what a new administration might achieve through the regulatory process. And there they can do a lot of damage. And so I'd expect to, to look uh, a lot of action in, in court uh, over regulatory agencies trying to do things. Uh, there, there's gonna be some developments on the Supreme Court. There's something known as the Chevron deference uh, doctrine that the court has had over the decades. Uh, that that has given regulatory agencies the ability to uh, um, have a lot more uh, deference uh, with respect to their pronouncements on regulations. Uh, that has come under increasing criticism, uh, and we've had some new justices put on the court that uh, I believe are going to be very critical of that doctrine. So that could, you know, help us and in, in mitigate some of the damage that these regulatory agencies are going to be able to do. Um, but I would expect a lot of the action is going to come out of not just the EPA, every single agency. You have Janet Yellen, who has been nominated uh, for uh, Treasury Secretary, talking about making climate change one of her uh, issues. And I remember when Janet Yellen was uh, on the Federal Reserve, chairing the Federal Reserve, you know, she, she came before the committee and she was flabbergasted in, in the, in the mid-2000s about why the economy was not growing because they kept on doing all these uh, tricks at the Federal Reserve. We had all this, this uh, the money that was coming out from these trillion dollar deficits under the Obama administration. And she complained about the persistent headwinds that the economy was facing, that we never reached the goal levels that she thought we were going to. And so I had a chance to ask her one time about, about those persistent headwinds. And I suggested that they were anthropogenic, that they were man-made headwinds and that they're in form of higher taxes and more regulation. Um, unfortunately, we're going back to those same anthropogenic headwinds uh, should the Biden administration comes in and every single agency is gonna be taking a look at, 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 is this action gonna impact climate change? Is that 
image, it, it, it'll, be, it'll become the, the prism through which they, 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 they see things. I was down for the SpaceX launch a couple of weeks ago and, and I'm thinking, yeah, what's gonna happen to our plans to get to the moon again? Are they gonna halt all the progress that NASA has been doing and all the testing that they've been doing? Oh, because we're not testing how that rocket might impact on climate change. Um, that's the kind of mindset that I'm afraid is coming in. Uh, you see it taking over a, a, a lot at the de Defense Department, looking at certain actions. Can we do this training? Is there, a, is there a climate change impact if we do this training? Come on, the Defense Department should be training to win wars, period. Uh, um, and that's what I'm uh, concerned is going to ha happen with all these, what I would call utopian idealists who are going to come in and think that they, they know how to manage the world perfectly. But it's just not the case. All right, lots there. So I want to start off with the prospect of a, of a Green New Deal or that kind of legislation. What advice do you have for elected officials and citizens in terms of how to counter that kind of thing? Because that could be unbelievably damaging. What they're talking about now is, is at least an order of magnitude worse, I think, than Obama's cap and trade of oh, 10 yeah. years ago. Yeah. Again, again, you take a look at who's, who it's going to hurt the most. It's going to hurt the middle class. It's going to hurt you know, jobs in, in, in in, uh, for middle-class workers, it's gonna drive up costs. Uh, I remember, I think when I was going back to the congressional record to look what I said about your book a few years ago, I remember citing statistics from the, the African-American Chamber of Commerce uh, uh, about the impact on the African-American community, the, 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 the Hispanic uh, Chamber of Commerce and the impact that they're concerned about on, on their community. Uh, with these higher costs, you know the folks in in uh, suburban Washington and and uh, um, in Hollywood, you know they're going to be fine. They have the money. They can afford, uh, you know, paying higher bills. Um, but the rest of us, no, it, it's it's not fair. Uh, and so I think that when when legislators, when citizens are talking these issues, I, I think you have to be speaking from the perspective of cons of a consumer of an employee, you know, they will argue that we're gonna have all these new green jobs. Well, that represents, you know, a lot of those jobs are gonna be heavily subsidized by the taxpayers. Uh, meanwhile, you have good family sustaining jobs. Look, look at what I cited before about this industry in Pennsylvania that's out there cleaning up these waste coal piles. This tremendous benefit to the environment that, that is being done, and it's being done without a single dime of taxpayers' money. Uh, that's a good thing. We should celebrate things. But here comes the Green New Deal advocates. They're going to have all these subsidies for all you know, government choosing what the preferred uh, energy source is going to be and mandate uh, this, this device or that service or this product as opposed to the free market building a better mousetrap and coming up with something that people want to invest in. If uh, just as a concrete thing, so if I think the Republicans are expected to win at least one Senate seat in Georgia, but let's say they lost both. So you had Democrat majority in the Senate, Democrat majority in the House. Do you think a Green New Deal type thing would pass or would it be possible to convince some of the Democrats to oppose it if you could communicate at all how destructive this would be? It's hard to believe a, a guy like Joe Manchin is going to vote for a Green New Deal. Um, uh, apart from Joe, I don't know who else we could try to peel off who would be more in favor of energy freedom. Um, I think you're looking at a lot of concerted court action, uh, protecting the American way of life uh, by challenging the regulatory edicts that would be coming out. And, and that was done with some success in the Obama administration, uh, where we, we did File, groups did file suit against some of his regulatory efforts and they were found to be uh, outside of, uh, of the scope of his authority or, or a, a given statute. Um, so it's going to be a, a tough few years coming down the pike and we just have to be ready. And, and then if the, if the Democrats were to take control of the Senate, well, that gears us up for 2022. With the yes, yeah, so I want to ask about the regulatory stuff because, uh, as you mentioned, there's just this increasing trend toward Congress not making laws and rather having these open-ended statutes. And then regulators, I mean, it's a government of men, not of laws, to, which is the reverse of the, the vision of this country. When that, so you mentioned lawsuits, and so that makes sense. But one of the things I noticed about the lawsuits during the Obama administration is. There's very little public engagement, and often it's viewed the the say the clean power plant 
is yeah. viewed as this amazingly positive thing. And then there's sort of this behind the scenes, oh, it gets attacked and maybe it'll get shot down or something. What is it possible for either congressmen or more broadly the public to get more involved in publicizing these issues? Will that affect at all the regulatory expansion? Because it seems insufficient to just kind of hope that the courts deal no, you, with things well. No, you, you have to be out there advocating for these positions. You know, when, I, when they were meeting uh, for the Paris Climate Accord Agreement, I was there on the House floor with other members from Pennsylvania uh, advocating for the, 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 the freedom of the American energy, energy sector. Uh, I, I think Newt Gingrich utilized that tactic very well in the early 1990s prior to the 1994 takeover, where you're allowed to go to the House floor and pretty much say whatever you want. It's a, it's a forum that we can get the word out. I think that people, when they go to their local Kiwanis meeting, their, their Rotary meetings, uh, they need to be willing to speak up. Now, we've had this onslaught of, of miseducation over the decades. Uh, you talk to people in your own family, I, my family members who are, it, it, they've become alarmists over, over climate. Um, yet science doesn't show that this is an, that it's an existential threat. Um, we've gone, you know, from it being a concern to being a catastrophe to being this, something that's going to wipe out the planet. It's a profoundly anti-human uh, uh, movement. It's, uh, they view people as the problem. And as I said, starting out mentioning my six kids, there are folks now who don't want to have a kid. Yeah, you know, because they think that the kid is going to be a carbon footprint and harmful to the environment. What a sad worldview that is. It's not one of optimism. It's one of pessimism. Um, it, it, look, the human person is the greatest natural resource uh, there ever was. You know, I, I grew up actually in Western New York and, and Jack Kemp was my congressman growing up and, and he talked about this. It was a very uh, positive view of humanity uh, and it's, it's the human person that, that figures out uh, how to cope with climate change, how to adapt. Look at the way Holland has been, held, been able to hit, hold back the sea for centuries. You know, at the beginning with very primitive technology you know, why aren't we the world leader in levee technology? Why aren't we looking at seawalls? You know, I, I think I, I recently over, um, is it in Venice where they, they put some barrier up by the Adriatic uh, to, to floodgates that would go up and down. And, and unfortunately, it took years to get that done and tremendous cost overruns. Uh, but we need to be looking at uh, ways to mitigate the impact of sea level rise. Uh, um, that's something that, that we can be agreeing on, I would think, uh, uh, in an infrastructure package, as opposed to just shut down all of the, the American energy production that's going to have a very detrimental uh, impact and, and the cost of which will far exceed any benefit. Uh, um, I've read the reports about the, the cost of uh, of things like the Green New Deal running into the trillions of dollars, and, and then you're going to lower global temperatures by what? Half a degree? That's it? Yeah. I mean, just one quick comment about those kinds of things, because I think it's the tendencies to dramatically underestimate the damage. And just to take a, a small case study, take what's happened in California just with yeah. the blackouts that we've had. A, you can't really quantify the damage of even just frequent blackouts in financial terms. Like if you were to say, well, how much did, has Venezuela lost now that they've become a third world economy? Like you can't put that in dollar terms because in part what happens is the dollars lose all value. The value of the dollars, the value of the dollar today depends on fossil fuels. Like it depends on a certain level of productivity. So, and we're really talking about fundamentally destroying our energy systems, including our electricity system, which if, if the Biden plan was actually implemented fully, it would do that. I mean, it'd be in, incomparably worse than California. We have a dysfunctional economy. We could not be, we wouldn't be a first world country. I mean, I literally think that would happen if this was implemented. Now, I think what's going to happen is it could be partially implemented, but there's with an electric grid among and with um, oil powered vehicles, you know, our mobile energy system, these are very fragile things. When they stop working for it, I mean, just think about New York, the power going out for a day or two. What happens when uh, the supply lines are cut off 
for a day or two. People have no idea how much our way of life depends on a continuous flow of reliable energy. So I, I agree with everything you're saying. I just think that the constant, when people talk about, oh, it's $5 trillion or whatever, that doesn't capture what it means to, to lack reliable um, energy. Yeah. Let me turn to something else because we're, uh, I, I still have a bunch more I want to um, ask you. So you mentioned on a couple of occasions, you were able to advance legislation that didn't pass, but it still made a difference. At least in one of the cases, it had this regulatory impact. And so that's something I've become very intrigued by. As you know, I've had this effort called energytalkingpoints.com. And recently I've expanded it into energy talking points on demand where I've started having weekly meetings with elected officials, which is really exciting. And one thing that's come up is what are some positive things we could advocate like, and I have ideas around nuclear decriminalization or grid fairness. There's all kinds of rigging against reliable energy, even aside from the subsidies. What's your view of the value of advancing positive legislation, even if it doesn't pass? And are there any tactics we can learn from to do that effectively? Uh, not, we, we, we can't just look at the federal government, too. You've got to look at your state government. There, there are things happening at the state level. And so we have this initiative here with our very liberal Governor Wolf has been doing in Pennsylvania with respect to a regional... Uh, the, the, I call it the Reggie tax. It, it, exactly, which is going to be, again, detrimental to Pennsylvania businesses. It's funny. Yeah, I remember a decade ago suggesting to the then governor, you know, what are we going to do to actually grow this commonwealth what are we going to do to grow the state of Pennsylvania to that, so that we don't lose a congressional seat again? Well, the redistricting is coming up next, next year. And we're going to lose a seat again because we're not growing like the rest of the country is growing because we keep on burdening our businesses with tax after tax after regulation after regulation. So to be on the lookout for initiatives at your, at, with your state legislature and to understand that they will have an impact on, on the energy mix. Uh, this is one thing where the, the Trump administration was trying to get states to have more responsibility on, on, on this aspect, as opposed to having a one-size-fits-all mandate coming out of Washington, D.C. Let the states innovate. That's where we can see what states do it better, and, and, and one would hope that states would adopt uh, things that are more efficient. Unfortunately, some states just don't get it. Look, New York State, for example, won't let you build a pipeline. You know, <laughs> New England is starving for Pennsylvania natural gas. Wouldn't it be great if we get a pipeline across New York State to get natural gas up into New England so that Russian ships wouldn't have to unload their liquefied natural gas at, at a port in Boston, which actually happened. Uh, uh, Again, do you want to be paying the Russians for gas? Or do you want to be paying Pennsylvanians for gas? So the gas is going to be used, but when you have this this mindset from folks like Governor Cuomo, who who really live in this utopian world, uh, it, it it it's you got to keep the the pressure on at the state level as, as well as at the federal level. Um, yeah, that makes sense. And actually, in my uh, energy talking points on demand, we have some really exciting state participants too, because uh, I think there are some opportunities with governor's offices. Right? And, and there are some good governors who could, who could be a model uh, for the nation. And of course, there are many bad state trends that need to be countered. But what about at the national level? Is there, is there the possibility of, of making a difference by advancing good ideas, even with a Democrat-controlled Congress? Well, I think so, because again, well, let's hope that the Republicans hold on to the Senate, because that does increase some leverage, and there's always going to be some horse trading uh, going on. Um, although, don't, to your earlier point about what would happen if the Democrats took took control. You know, when the Democrats last had uh, unified control of the government, they passed Obamacare, they passed Dodd-Frank, which was Obamacare for the financial industry, um, but they did not pass the cap-and-trade scheme. You know, that was the one hill that they could not get over. Right. I mean, I think it's a different and again, I don't, I don't act like, I'm not, I don't particularly identify with any major party right now, but I identify with being pro-freedom. And I think, unfortunately, with this issue in particular, climate catastrophism and these fossil fuel elimination policies have become more, uh, and more just, they've more saturated Democrats in terms of the yeah. language of like existential yeah. threat. This is the top issue. I, mean, I think it's quite a bit of a different environment than it was 10 years ago with Waxman Markey. The but but we, we have allies. We have allies that used to be part, a, a reliable part of the Democrat coalition. 
I'm thinking of organized labor, for example, not so much government unions, but uh, um, the, the boilermakers, the, the, the steam fitters, the trade unions. Uh, um, we talked about Sean Steffi, and you had him on the program recently. Uh, it, it, um, you know, I, I met him a couple months ago, and I said, have you read The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels? And he was very intrigued by that. Uh, so again, when, when people, Remember Steve Covey had that book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And one, one, one of the things he talked about was paradigm shifting. You know, trying to get folks who are, are, are thinking a certain way to view something from another perspective. And so while the mantra has been for, for really for 20 years that fossil fuels are evil, they're bad, you know, if you step back and take a look at the work you've done and say, well, wait a minute, you, you know, yeah, let, let's acknowledge that we wanna be good stewards of our environment. But have fossil fuels really been all that bad? You know, have, you look at look at the the how this country progressed. Look at the the living standards. I, th I think in your book you cite going from uh, um, the average age of being what twenty seven at the in eighteen hundred to now over eighty. Uh, and, yeah, it's, and that, it's close it, to that, that level of increase. Coincide with coincided with the development of this country and the development of cheap abundant. Uh, electricity. Uh, these are good things to be talking about. Uh, um, and the jobs and the opportunities that people have. Uh, uh, rather than having bureaucrats in Washington, D.C., where a, a couple both working at the high end of Washington in the government could be pulling down 400000 a year between them, you know, telling folks back in, in flyover country who, you know, make a fraction of what they're making, what kind of energy they have to use or what kind of job they have to have. That's just not right. Uh, okay, two more questions. Second to last question. So I've mentioned energytalkingpoints.com. I know you've taken a look at it a little bit. I'm curious what you think of that and any advice you have for me to try to make more of an impact in the next two years. Yeah, I think uh, number one, keep doing what you're doing. I think that your work has been groundbreaking. Um, it, uh, it, was, it was refreshing when I came across your book because it really tied right in with with you know my vision for the of the human person uh, um and, and the concept of human flourishing uh, um and, and getting people to appreciate that uh, uh it's not all bad you know it, it's is the glass half full or is it half empty um i i think the more you work with others uh, um and look for partnerships look Look at, look at the trade unions and, and yeah, look at uh, maybe some um, uh, areas where we could be partnering with people that uh, uh, might not think too much about energy. Look at the healthcare industry. You know, we had this very this terrible uh, uh, situation going on with COVID and, and the grave concerns we had at the beginning of the year uh, with ventilators. Well, you need electricity to run ventilators. You need dependable electricity to run ventilators. You can't be in a situation where the hospital is running. Now, most hospitals, probably all hospitals, I would think, have some form of backup power supply and backup generator. Fossil fueled backup. Well, yeah, but supply. God forbid they didn't. You know, you know, keeping people alive on a ventilator requires electricity. Uh, um, and so looking for uh, groups that could be really allies in this. Um, looking for opportunities to challenge uh, um, what has become orthodoxy, uh, and it has it has crossed from being just opinion. There, there is a religious fervor that you see among certain folks promoting the climate alarm, alarmism, um, and uh, I think to be understand that there are some who are, have just been fed this line and not had the opportunity to do some critical thinking about it and to offer tools for people to think critically. Uh, is it what they're saying or is this some, some where are the interests here? Look at, look at Solyndra, look at, look at the Solyndras of the world, uh, which got into these government funded and government backed programs and walked away with millions of dollars and then went bankrupt. Where's the accountability there? Uh, um, so I, I would look, for, continue to do the work you're doing, look for ways to expand uh, um, the audience uh, and maybe look for some unorthodox uh, uh, markets that you can be talking to. 
Awesome. Thanks for that. All right. Final question. What are you doing going forward? You're no longer in Congress, unfortunately, and, and I've been out for a little while. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What are you planning to do going forward? And is there anything our listeners can get involved in? Yeah, I've been doing some consulting. Uh, a lot of members of Congress end up doing that. Um, doing some board work, doing some volunteer work. We uh, got reconnected with the family after being uh, away so much. Um, still looking for ways, though, to, to be engaged, to, to uh, um, do in the private sector what I tried to do in the public sector. Uh, um, look for ways to uh, promote a better world, um, which is exactly what you're doing. You know, we could not have the kind of progress uh, that we need to have uh, if we didn't have the energy sources that we do. Um, and to be optimistic, uh, yeah, we have a tremendous number of challenges in this country. This has been a very difficult year, uh, um, economically, socially, with the protests, uh, um, the, the, uh, uh, obviously the health issues. Uh, but as we come out of this, uh, you know, there needs to be a kind of, uh, shifting of rhetoric, and I, and I see this so much from the left, this demonization uh, uh, of things, demonization of speech, demonization of thought. I'm, I'm sure that there are people who think that this podcast is demonic because we're, we're defending the use of fossil fuels. That's really unfortunate. Uh, that's, that's new in our politics, where you don't just have a disagreement, but you, you're basically accusing somebody of being evil and having evil intent uh, uh, for advocating a position that is re really for hundreds of years been perfectly reasonable. Um, so I think uh, to have a little bit of patience with folks, uh, um, to continue to advocate for uh, uh, the betterment of our society, um, those are the things I would hope everybody should be looking at. And, and, and once you tone down some of the rhetoric, we might get, we might get there. But if you come in with the, uh, the mindset, which uh, again, the AOCs of the world seem to, that all this stuff is evil, well, it, it's hard to, 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 to achieve uh, something in that context. You just have to confront that with facts. Great. Um, final question. If anyone needs, wants to contact you, if they want to work with you on anything, what, how should they contact you? Uh, follow me on Twitter. I'm at uh, Keith Rothfuss. Uh, at K-E-I-T-H-R-O-T-H-F-U-S. And email address is simple. It's Keith at KeithRothfuss.com. Awesome. Congressman Rothfuss, thanks for coming on Power Hour. It's been fun. Good talking to you. Thanks again to Congressman Keith Rothfuss for joining me. Just going to do my usual wrap-up. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail or hate mail, email me at alex at alexepstein.com. I mentioned to energytalkingpoints.com. Check that out. There are some new entries now, three new entries actually that are just posted today. I'm doing this on Wednesday, December 2nd, and maybe there'll be more by the time that you listen to this if you listen to it later. So there's that. If you are in contact with any officials or if you are one or staff at, in Congress, in the Senate, or in governor's offices, encourage them to contact me at alex at alexepstein.com about energy talking points on demand. This is a weekly call plus messaging service that I'm offering for free to elected officials and their staff. Uh, it's going really well so far, but we want way, way more participation. So please come to me if you're interested in that or direct people toward me. Let's see what else. Well, speaking of energy talking points, actually, let me, let me switch subjects. I have not, I don't think I've talked about it on the podcast yet. I have a new book coming out. Now it's not coming out all that soon, but actually the moral case for fossil fuels 2.0 is no longer happening. There's actually going to be a brand new book. What happened was moral case 2.0 had evolved so much and I was covering such different ground. It was totally rewritten and expanded that my agent and publisher said, no, this is a new book, it needs to be a new book, promoted as a new book. So we are finishing that up right now. Title and other things will be announced soon, but hope you are excited about that. And that reminds me of what I was just going to talk about, which is I want to thank our accelerators. Those of you who contribute to our research and development efforts and our promotional efforts, 
without that, there's no way this book would be as good as it is. I've been able to assemble an amazing research team, an amazing consultation team that have helped this book so dramatically. They've helped my thinking. All that research and consultation doesn't just help this book. It helps all my work. It makes my speeches better, my podcasts better. And certainly it's dramatically helped energytalkingpoints.com and Energy Talking Points On Demand. So thanks so much to Accelerators. If you want to become an accelerator, go to Alex, no, not Alex at alex.com. Feel free to email me if you have any questions about that, but go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. Uh, one more uh, contribution type, type opportunity. This is actually a not-for-profit one. All of our stuff is for-profit, so nothing is tax deductible because we don't like any interference by government. But there's actually a nonprofit organization, a very major one. I won't say the name at this point, but it's a major one that is putting on an eight-location uh, eight campus lecture tour of me in 2021. If you are a nonprofit contributor, if you have a foundation, something like that, they are looking for potential sponsors. Now, this is not something that's for everybody. Uh, I think they're looking for people at the 10,000 and higher level, but if that happens to be you or you know someone who might be interested, it's a really cool project. The organization has uh, an amazing track record of boosting the profile of people and ideas. I'm speaking to them uh, for a discount because I really believe in, in this tour and I think it can have a huge impact. So if you're interested in supporting that, just email me, alex at alexepstein.com subject tour. Let's see, anything else to cover this week? Well, next week, I am going to have on a guest that I'm very excited about. He is a former professor, no, he rather, he is a professor at my former school, Duke University. His name is Adrian Bejan. He is a renowned engineering professor who has fascinating ideas about energy. And I wish I had learned about him and learned from him when I was at Duke, uh, but I only took my engineering classes that I did take were not at his department, but we're gonna, I was introduced to him recently, really fascinating ideas. It's always cool to learn from new theorists who are studying similar things to what I am, but have their own unique perspectives. And this guy, Adrian Bejan, certainly qualifies. So be excited for that. And with that in mind, I look forward to talking to everyone next week. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.